if you look at the timeline of Cypress Hill and then you have Snoop coming out, rising and talking about cannabis. Hi, this is Neil, and it's time for a special bonus edition of Cannabis Daily. On November the 3rd, over 400 industry leaders, investors, and policymakers gathered at the New York Academy of Medicine to discuss the future of the New York cannabis market. Here is one of the panels at that event. By the way, tickets are now on sale for the 2023 conference in October next year. Get them now at CannabisNewYork.live. This panel's called Hip Hop, Cannabis, and New York City, the Roots of an Industry. So I'm going to start off by being upfront, and I'm probably the only person in this room that does not smoke cannabis. <laughs> However, I can engage in a very interesting conversation, and that may not be for very long. So I'm part of Generation X, which many had called the forgotten generation. We were sandwiched between the baby boomers and the millennials. We grew up in an era of video music box and MTV. We grew up being the first generation to utilize personal computers. We grew up with listening to Biggie as well as Tupac. And today's conversation is going to focus around hip hop, cannabis and New York City, the roots of an industry. I don't think my panelists need too much of an introduction. Obviously, Fab Five Freddy is a visual artist, filmmaker, advocate, and founder of Be Noble. And of course, CJ just introduced himself and has quite a number of titles, uh, including the founder of Frank Wright and Think Big. I'm going to start the conversation with Fab Five Freddy because I think before we can get into the role that cannabis has played in hip hop, we really need to address placing drug usage into historical context in relationship to music culture, and then specifically hip hop. If you can kind of walk us through memory lane in those early days of pre-hip hop and going into the early inception of hip hop and how the drug culture kind of shifted. Yeah, well, I grew up in a, what I guess I would call a, like a cannabis household, so to speak. My dad was a big jazz aficionado, uh, grew up loving jazz, and he grew up in, in indulging in cannabis. So it was around from me being a baby, but I also knew that it was something that, you know, you couldn't, it was, it was an illegal substance. And I even have problems with the fact that cannabis is considered a drug, if you will, when it's plant-based medicine, but understanding the motivation behind the criminalization of cannabis and the racism that was involved they just, you know, and, and it being on a schedule next to heroin, we understand that. But it was integral in my life growing up. My dad, once again, was a really into jazz. He was a business guy, but he was into jazz. And smoking cannabis was a part of what went on. And then as I became a young teen, I was like, and, you know, my peer group, you know, wanted to smoke. I didn't, was never really that into alcohol, but cannabis was like, ah. And so it was a big part of my life from then. And then in terms of hip hop, it was just what young folks did on the street. You know, you might have a beer or two and then, you know, chipping in. I mean, I'm I go back to when it was a three dollar bag and a five dollar five dollar bag and a.k.a. a nickel bag on the streets of New York or loose joints, which were dollar. So that was right the, about there when the subway system was 50 and 75 cents. Yeah. The same and, price that pizza was. If you notice, there's a correlation there. Yeah, exactly. So that was just a standard thing. And um, 
So it was synonymous and with what went on in music. And similarly, as I laid out in my film, Grass is Greener, learning, um, I was a young teenager when I was just looking through a record bin in the jazz section, and there's this record called, I think, 15 Reefer songs. And I was like, what? And I looked at the artists, and it was Fats Waller and, you know, Louis Armstrong and a bunch of acts. I went home with this record, and my dad and his friends got a big laugh because they knew all these songs and, you know, knew some of the slang was completely foreign to me, although some of the slang was stuff that we used as kids. So it helped me know from, like, how connected it was but those records were below underground in terms of how we classify stuff now so i was able to showcase that and then realize these connections and links still exist as hip-hop was developed and obviously i smoked with your dad who was biggie was smoked them blunts non-stop it was incredible <laughs> his intake you know i'm a guy i smoke but i'm like i'll take a few pulls and i'm cool for a minute but Biggie, but they would keep rolling and keep coming around. And um, and then Branson, another story I get to tell, one of the most famous legacy participants. This is a guy that just had a good Cali connection in the 90s that consistently had quality cannabis at a time when hip hop was shifting into higher gear. And I guess it's something that we're now, as we now learn more about the science and the medicine in cannabis, and the fact that it doesn't make you creative, but it aids that process. In fact, jazz musicians talked about the cannabis kind of, in a way, slows things down, not literally, but in a, in a sense that when you need to improvise in and around the measures of the music, cannabis puts you in a zone where that, that, that helps that happen. It oils that improvisational mechanism, which is at the core of so much of American music. And so, yeah, just a lot of these things that I absorbed and got a chance to share and show. But yeah, so I don't want to, I can go on and on. <laughs> so for me growing up, it seemed that cannabis was not necessarily the cool thing to do in the early 80s. And I say that because I immediately think of hippies. I think of the Cheech and Chong flick mm -hmm. films that we were watching back then. It was almost like a little bit of a slapstick comedy. We always had someone in our family that did it or that sold drugs. What was the stigma? Because CJ kind of touched upon it slightly in his presentation. You know, the stigma attached to communities of color and the usage of cannabis. Well, you know, we were disproportionately policed and it was once again, uh, it, it, and it just tormented people of color and people connected to the music and things like that. And so you knew like you can get busted, you can go to jail. It was very problematic. And so you had to move a certain way. But at the same time, when I was younger coming up and cannabis culture, particularly around music, going to parties. It was typical that people at concerts always lit up. I remember going to see some of the first acts I saw at Madison Square Garden, Parliament, Funkadelic, and other kind of groups. There would be a huge cloud hovering. I mean, of course, people smoked cigarettes at the time as well. But people would smoke cannabis and pass joints to other people in the row. It was like a camaraderie, feel-good, bring-everybody-together type of part of the culture more so in New York than, than now with cannabis more readily available, so. 
So when President uh, Ronald uh, Reagan took office in 1981, he had vowed to crack down on the substance abuse that had reprioritized this idea of war on drugs that had been kicked off by Richard Nixon um, in the earlier 70s. Where did weed fit into this concept of war on drugs and that Reagan era of just say no? Well, I think it fit in right at the top of what they really wanted to do, which I think when we look at the history now, it's clear that cannabis was used as a tool for people in power to criminalize and imprison those that they weren't feeling, didn't like. So initially, based on the lies that were laid out there on the plant, particularly under the reign, under the reign of Harry Anslinger that led the Reefer Madness campaign of making films that scared the hell out of people like this would make you criminally insane and he just completely created a false narrative that led to cannabis becoming criminalized even when there were tests going on that showed all this stuff that you guys are saying doesn't seem to be true and it could be some benefits the LaGuardia uh, the mayor of New York back in the 30s LaGuardia there was a test that he which, um, you know, made happen. It had his name on it that said that. And then later in the Nixon era, there had been another test that showed similar evidence that he completely swept under the rug and continued to use drug laws to imprison people that weren't in sync with the war in Vietnam or wanted change or wanted civil rights or all those things that were going down in the 60s and 70s. So that was the main reason. Um, the main way that they were able to put people in jail and threaten people's lives. And unfortunately, black folks, you know, got bared the brunt of that. Um, other folks of color as well were just given unbelievable jail times. And that led me to create the cannabis brand. I did beat, you know, Bernard Noble was given a 13 year sentence for two joints worth of weed. He served seven years and luckily it all came together in the right way. He got a parole and we were able to, create something that raises awareness about these issues. At one point, did we go from using it recreationally and, and partying and then putting it on wax? Because there wasn't a, you know, in the earlier part, I remember Melly Mel and White Lines. And how do we go from that to Cypress Hill and Dr. Dre's The Chronic, right? So there's a, a big gap in terms of when we start speaking about it and now sending that message across, uh, you know, globally. I think in the counterculture, people were always aware that this plant is beneficial and it just would just re refuted the avalanche of lies that were told. And so I grew up in a household where my dad had a lot of information coming through the house, all kind of publications. And you would see like different publications, Rolling Stone, you know, there was just articles that refuted what the government was saying. And then it's interesting, Peter Tosh made one of the great cannabis songs of all time, legalized it literally in 1976. That was also the name of the album. That's over 40, damn near 45 years ago, legalized it. And it's really all about the medical benefits of the plant, which was very clever that that was the battering ram in a way that kind of convinced people to let's give this a chance. So it, it never turned out to be like all those lies that we were bombarded with the gateway drug and all these things it was clear like none of that happened and it at the same time it's beneficial who would you say were some of the early mcs who brought it to the wax and why did it seem that it was the west coast that really kind of thrusted it forward 
maybe because they consistently, those hippies, after the hippie movement, went up into them Humboldt Hills and really focused on growing that killer weed that they really revolutionized, like crossbreeding strains, you know, strains from Himalayas and Amazon and in uh, India and all kind of eleven every you know stuff mixed with strains from Hawaii and creating all these special products that and then you know I mean literally be real in them like listen they love the Cheech and Chong films like so many of us did yeah. and they decided I think it was specific when be real talked about reading Jack Herrera's book The Emperor's new clothes, if, if that's the correct title, and all this relevant information about the medicine, the real science behind the plant, the lies that were told, and what the truth was, that they then committed themselves to being all about that early 90s and having hits, that's important. And, you know, and that was, I think that coincides, if you look at the timeline of Cypress Hill and then you have Snoop coming out and the whole West Coast thing yep, rising totally. and talking about cannabis, very upfront and personal. And then California going into medical in the 90s, it seems to coincide like the, the sensibility was right in that part of town, in that part of the country, if you will, for people to stand up. And, um, and you know, and then come on, look, don't leave out one of my favorite cannabis songs, the guys in the Bay, the um, loonies with I got five on it, you know, just serious classic joints that just put you in that right zone and just talked about what it was to light up and, you know, and feel good about it all. How would you say hip hop played a pivotal role in diversifying and revolutionizing the public's view of consumption and the acceptance of marijuana across the board? Well, I think it had just had a lot to do with the fact that, um, you know, I guess I, play a part in that too, hosting your MTV raps. Yeah. <laughs> and when, you know, you barely heard hip hop on the radio in the, in the eighties or the late eighties. And then MTV decided to take this radical chance to push, uh, to, you know, to ask me to come on and interview and play these records. And, uh, it spread like wildfire ahead of radio being on it. And so even though we couldn't play those songs as things got bleeped out or beeped out, people went and bought those records, heard what it was. And, and uh, went out and brought some weed. <laughs> so I want to get more into the psyche as to why the hip-hop consumer and the hip-hop person is into the weed. So was bud usage a form of influence, escape, acceptance, rebellion, or all of the above? I'd say definitely all of the above. And I'm just fascinated by the fact that as we learn more about the way the plant uh, really, you know, activates in us, we learn that we've been medicating before we really knew that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's just was telling us that. And I think that was really at the key of it all because it's not addictive, obviously, in a physical sense, but the feel good, the re and those things that aid our existence, I think, were, were there. And we're now learning more about what, how this was helping and affecting us. Plus, there's the fact that each individual, every single human has 
a endocannabinoid system, a specific set of receptors just for the plant, which is phenomenal. So that means, you know, one person, it may affect them this way and, you know, less may have an effect on another person, but it's definitely affecting. And as we get more research, we'll be able to be able to isolate and know more about how these various sub, you know, elements of the plant have an effect on us. Usage can vary from generation to generation. So, CJ, I want you to kind of now put that in perspective yeah. from your perspective. Yeah. How do you see usage? Is it a form of influence, escape, yeah. acceptance, or rebellion? And is it different than how, let's say, our generation right. saw it? Well, just from, obviously, to pick up on where, where Fab left off, my, my mom and my dad both told me that they were self-medicating before they even knew what, what medicating was. So... It was definitely a, a form of escape. Obviously, growing up in low-income areas, you know, I know my mom growing up in Jersey, she just wanted to find any reason to get away from Jersey. And that helped, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that that was a huge piece for her and not only helping her find her voice creatively, but for me personally, you know, I was in high school when I first tried cannabis and I was going through my, my parents' divorce, you know, so understanding who I was at that time and finding my voice, I, it's very similar, you know, just trying to find an escape as well. But also, what what is my place here, you know, and, and really figuring out, is it, do I just want to follow in the footsteps of my parents and go into music or do I want to be a little bit more creative and venture out into an area where I'm not as comfortable? So it, it definitely, for me, was something that helped me... Um, just jump off the porch like just just help me ask those questions and and be curious and wonder why things are the way they are so yeah it was definitely um all the above for me while we are in a welcoming and safe space where everyone's on the same page there's still quite a bit of stigma attached to it talk to me a little bit about you know i've read about your story and talking to your grandmother who also has suffered with arthritis as i have right and being able to kind of cross that barrier and go from seeing it in those negative terms and right. way it was hammered into us for so long to seeing really the benefits yeah. and coming over to the other side yeah so it was tough even telling my grandma that I wanted to get into cannabis. You know, she was very much, you know, anti when I first started Frank White. First, Where do you think that stemmed from? Uh, propaganda in the media, obviously. And she's from Jamaica. You know, my, my, my dad's side of the family's from Jamaica. So none of my, you know, my grandparents are, they're not Rastafarians. You know, they, they believe in living life uh, purely, you know, and it took a lot of research and showing her a lot of the studies to show her this is not just to get high. You know, my youngest brother who deals with autism, he needs this just to help him go through life regularly. And once she really looked at the research and I showed her a lot of the footage of how he would act, you know, after his, his tincture versus how he would act before, she really got to understand and grasp. And then once I gave her some, uh, you know, uh, a topical rub for her knee and she felt the difference. There was no more argument, you know, it was so once people really get the research and they, they get that education, it's very hard to dispute facts. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a fun journey showing her that this is not what you thought it was. <laughs> I got to actually say, I told you so. So I've got a story on that same tip. I'd like to share. Um, 
my mom would get a kick at this looking down at me from heaven. But when she was in her latter years, this was back in the earlier 2000s, my mother had a lot of health issues, so it was affecting her diet. And so, you know, we would talk on the regular, of course, and she was like, I can't eat. And I used to jokingly say, well, Ma, you, you should smoke a joint. She'd be like, oh, boy, shut up. Because my mom just didn't smoke cannabis or cigarettes, an occasional drink, but she was just not a smoker. So I had a friend in California that had produced a batch of cannabis lollipops that he had been was selling out of a dispensary there. And he'd given me a batch. I'm not particularly like an edibles guy. I like to smoke it, feel it, and just kick back as opposed to the 30, 40 minutes. But anyway, I had some of these lollipops. And I said, well, Ma, listen, you know, I've got some of these cannabis lollipops, and I'm sure you've heard that it can help the appetite. And she said, well, you know, that's a good point. Bring some of them over. So eventually, my mom, she decided one night, to have one of these lollipops. And she called me up and said, well, I'm about to have, have this lollipop. I said, well, okay, mom, listen, it's going to take about 30 minutes or so to kick in, eat the lollipop and kick back. My mother called me 10 minutes later. Well, well, boy, I don't feel nothing. I said, mom, look, you just took it. And she called me back again. Boy, listen, what's going on? I don't feel, I said, mom, about an hour later, my mother called me. She said, boy, listen, I had to call your sister upstairs to tell her boyfriend to wake up and go to the deli and get me a hero. <laughs> <laughs> and it really worked. And uh, this is a, a great example. Like, once again, she wasn't one of them anti-anti. She, she just was not a smoker. But the medical thing got through, it worked, and there we go. There's a proof. And that, I think, had a lot to do with how the medical opened the doors or changed the perceptions and sensibilities in various states. And I think a lot of it also has to do with fear, right? I mean, it's the messaging that they've had over and over. And to change that thought process, it takes that one-on-one -on -one personal relationship. I know earlier we talked about, you know, was it, what is it going to make? for the industry to be completely legalized. And we leave out that idea of that relationship marketing, that one-on-one -on -one relationship. And it's feeling comfortable that someone could have a one-on-one -on -one conversation say, listen, how do I start? Where do I go? How much do I consume, right? And breaking that fear pattern. Um, so now let's talk a little bit about the business of cannabis. Um, while it's a com it's common for rappers like uh, Wiz, Khalifa, and Snoop to have their own brand strains, it's still kind of a young market and a bit tricky as it is sticky. There's a lot of still uh, legal barriers involved and distribution models flaws. So let's talk a little bit about that. Where is the branding of weed today? Well, it's in its infancy, so yeah. it's, it's coming together now. The things that CJ's doing, speaking brilliantly about what he's doing with the Frank White brand, the things that we're trying to do and messaging about what the brand's purpose really is. Um, Cookies, obviously, is doing a phenomenal job. And the industry needs brands. That's, you know, we know that people can grow good cannabis. Um, uh, branding, something that can create an emotional connection with the consumer and them getting the story is what we, you know, needs to happen right now. And also, while we're doing that, we're fighting 80 plus years of misinformation that we've been bombarded with, you know. This is your brain on drugs, like that scramble mm -hmm. egg frying. Oh, yeah. Cannabis was looped into that. So we had to 
you know, break those walls down and, you know, tell good stories. And that's how we're going to create more brands. Yeah. Telling those stories, obviously, just picking up on what he said. Um, there's so many great stories that that one of your mom is a great one. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, telling those stories and letting people know um, you're not alone. You were lied to as well. Like we all were. And, you know, it's up to us to really shape this industry. You know, if, if we're the only ones who are willing to do it. So, CJ, do we take a page out of the hip hop history books and do we attack product placement and marketing in the same fashion way? Yeah, I just want to say, yeah. yeah, because I think Burner, I don't know if people know, like a lot of people have heard about cookies, but a lot of people may not know that that man has made over 40 rap albums, 40 albums. So he loves hip hop um, and has the hustle that got hip hop to where it is. You know, the, the, it's, the, it's the classic story, like nobody was checking for us in the beginning, especially at the record companies, but a few records got to come out like that uh, Catch the Beat song from that era when it was just singles, no marketing, no promotion, but word of mouth made it happen. And so what's gonna happen in hip hop, just like my man Vlad at Happy Monkey and Catch that got that street thing and know how to get it there and know how to tell a story with the relentless passion and energy that made hip hop what it is, that's what's gonna create the brands in cannabis. Because just coming with a slick, big budget marketing campaign, that's not going to do it. You right. got to figure out a better, real story to tell, to connect with the person one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, and no I, question authenticity, right? Because exactly. again, it's the like same thing with the clothing business. Everyone thought, oh, look, urban brands can make money. I'm just going to create a brand. It's not that simple. Correct. Right. As long as there's a genuine connection and a real love that you have for this plant, then it's going to win. I feel like everybody's... Um, most people are, are in it for the right reasons, but there's a lot of companies that aren't. So, you know, as long as you're in it for the right reasons, doing this genuinely, uh, people are going to catch on. CJ, what type of projected influence and impact do you want to have with the Frank White brand? Oh, man. Like, I've, I've been trying to get this point across to a lot of people. Um, we're not trying to make everybody smoke weed. We're just trying to educate people. You know, at the end of the day, I just want to impact as many families as I can from, you know, people like my youngest brother, Ryder, to adults like my great grandmother, who just turned 100 this year and is, is using all types of cannabis products to help treat her every day. So um, the scale, it ranges and there's so many people we can impact. And that's the most important thing for us. How many how many people can you touch? Last question before we open it up to the floor. How can people utilize the hip hop platform to educate and promote the benefits of cannabis? That's a good question. I'd like to say it all comes down to like hits. So if you could put all the right information and and get a hit out of it, that has a remarkable effect on people. I think it's about the people at the end of the day and who's who's giving the messaging, because at the end, like. We all love, you know, our favorite artists, but you can't tell me if Rihanna, Jay-Z, and all of your favorite artists all got together and all were pro-cannabis together, that would be a huge impact. So I think it takes, you know, it takes a group, it takes a village to really, really get the point across. So, yeah. All right. I want to thank my panelists and open it up to anyone who may have some questions.
Any hands? See one in the back. Hi, my name is Christian Rosa, and I'm trying to get into the industry, of course. Uh, my family, you know, I have a crazy history. My family was impacted with the war on drugs, you know, from the 80s and everything. So my family has been impacted. So I'm trying to do, what do you guys think about like the mom and pops? How are they going to thrive? Like you guys saying that you got to be a cultural, you have to be a part of it, right? You have to have the love for the cannabis, right? So I'm from New York originally, so I have a love for it. You know, you have probably the same story as I do growing up. I smoked it from high school, you know. My mom always was against it. She's Dominican, so she's always frowned upon, upon it. So, you know, I had to go through my endeavors with her, you know, to teach her about it and tell her about it, you know. So that was like you guys are talking about it. You know, I'm going through the same struggles. So I just want to show, like, how's it going to be for people from New York that want to be a part of it to get more involved and evolve with it to show the people that is for the people. It's not just for a particular group. It's for everyone because this is a drug for everyone that has been misrepresented, especially with everything that everyone talks about, it, you know? So I just want to know, like, what's the best way to go about it and to partner up, like you said, to get the best out of what we need for this state of cannabis, you know? If I can, yeah, I would say doing exactly what you're doing, you know, coming to events like this, um, continuously asking those questions, going out into your, to your community, having these same dialogues with people in the community and, um, yeah, building that coalition of people that you, you know, trust um, and just develop this, develop whatever it is that you want to develop and bringing your talents that are outside of the cannabis industry into the cannabis industry. It's not about starting up a dispensary or, or you know, building a grow house. If you're a photographer, we need photographers in the cannabis space. If you're a lawyer, we need lawyers in the cannabis space. So whatever it is that you do outside of cannabis, bring it to the cannabis space. That's it. Thank yeah, you. good point. It's going to be a whole lot of businesses and opportunities besides working at a dispensary, being a bud tender or growing the plant. Many opportunities are on the horizon. And I would say focus on the business part of cannabis, right? Um, marketing's four P's. They're basic. We teach it in all our you know, business schools. You want to focus on the product, right? So you've got to figure out what is the right product for you and how you can differentiate it among the competitors. You want to have it at the right price. We talked a lot about pricing and how you're able to compete, uh, place your areas of distribution, and then your promotional strategies as well. We have another question. Hello, my name's Angelica. Um, I'm a cannabis nurse, and I um, heard you speak about education within the cannabis uh, industry, specifically within our own community. Both my parents are from Brooklyn, so I do love New York. Um, I don't know if anyone knows Roca de Salvacion. Um, my grandfather was Wenceslao Martinez, and there, his street is there. So um, I just am really interested to know what sort of educational um, opportunities do you look for within our own community? Well, I didn't hear everything clearly, but I know that Mecca Evans College in Brooklyn, I think is the first city college which has cannabis on the curriculum courses involving the plant um, growing 
I'm sure history, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure more colleges are gonna jump all over that soon. So right now, Mega Evers does have several courses dealing with various aspects and at a collegiate level, which is gonna, once again, gonna grow as more people wanna learn uh, the various aspects from seed to sale, you're gonna need to dial in and, you know, get in, get that education. So city colleges are starting to teach that. And there's a library full of books and the internet, of course. Yeah, I would, I would say signing up for all of the different, where are you? Right there. <laughs> I would say signing up for all the different um, pro-cannabis associations, uh, Minority Cannabis Business Association, Harlem Business Alliance, um, and there's so many more groups and, and, and uh, administrations that are just trying to give people information and, and share the education that they have. So I would just say kind of be on the lookout for all of the different groups, whether it's in your neighborhood or, or online as well. Yeah. And I would say tell and share your story. So make sure I see you right after this panel. I'm a reporter and correspondent for CUNY TV, and I'd love to feature you on one of our segments. Um, this is more of a statement than a question. My name is Carrie Edwards. I'm the head of corporate and social responsibility for air wellness. So in doing corporate and social responsibility, what you said, CJ, was very important to my colleague and I because this is what we do. April 20th this year, we did an autism event with your mom. Wow. Um, and, and we donated to the to Riders Foundation. Also, I'm Ethan and Miles' dad, and so Thais told me to tell you hi. <laughs> All right, so to say that. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Elizabeth McCorvey, and I'm the executive director of the Family Resource Center of Peekskill in New York. It's a pleasure to be here. I did attend the Albany MWBE, and they did a segment on um, cannabis, and we met the chief, um, Mr. Christopher Alexander. And it's so nice to meet you, to see you <laughs> and stuff. I saw so much about your dad, and it's just nice to see that you're continuing the legacy. Um, I just basically want to know, from the last segment, you guys, uh, the, the speaker mentioned that um, it's going to get pretty dark with the cannabis industry. So um, I guess that the people of color, he was fearful, would not be able to get the financing. So um, I want to see, basically ask, is there a list of funders that can help people of color come up with the monies necessary? Because we do low-income housing, and I have approximately about 24 units. So we, we have some vacant lots and we'd like to see maybe if we can um, have them so that people can grow some things like a co-op to help our struggling residents be able to afford if they get behind in rent and help some of the seniors in New York State. So, and anybody that has deep pockets, we're open for donations <laughs> and partnerships as well. So, God bless you guys for the work Thank that you. you're doing. Nice to meet you. And I'll give you my cards. Thank you. Thank you. Also, I say I'm not clear on the specifics, but I heard that the New York State is putting a fund together 
to aid in some of those uh, people that will get licenses to aid in the building out of the businesses. So I'm not 100% clear, but once again, um, a, a lot of that stuff is flowing online and the uh, Office of Cannabis Management in New York are pushing out information all the time. So good point, and people are going to need funding, and I think they're thinking ahead of that, because I know in San Francisco, they were some people that had been victims of the war on drugs, cannabis, people of color, that were given the opportunity to get some dispensaries, but then couldn't get anyone who would finance these guys. So it was a problem, and I think they're thinking of anticipating what worked and didn't work and trying to fix that in New York, we hope. Great. Well, on that note, please help me thank my guest, Fab Five Threading, CJ Wallace. Now, you can secure your seat at next year's event right this second. It's scheduled for the 4th of October, 2023. Tickets are on sale at CannabisNewYork.live. You'll find the link in the show notes.